Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's time for Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe Sorallo. Start this weekend then with this episode of Sorallo Sports Talk. It's me, Joe Sorallo, joining the show momentarily, Mike Golick Jr. of ESPN. Can't wait. We're going to be all over Notre Dame and the rest of the college football landscape. All over Tasha, single-handedly saving this season of The Bachelorette. And we even have a little fantasy draft action. We are going to draft our best Thanksgiving plates and put them up against one another. We'll put the poll up on Twitter, see which plate you would rather have on Thanksgiving, less than a week away, my favorite holiday. I can't wait, but we've got to start with Thursday Night Football. And speaking of Thanksgiving, let Russ cook. The Seattle Seahawks back on track after a great game against Kyler Murray and the Arizona Cardinals just last night. Look, don't get me wrong, it's not like the Seattle Seahawks dominated This game, it was a close game, it was a great game, it was everything you want when there's only one primetime game on television. But everything that needed to go right for Seattle in this one went right. Russ looked phenomenal. He looked back on track, didn't light up the box score by any means, but did everything he needed to do. His execution was impeccable last night. I mean, high completion percentage, his chemistry with Tyler Lockett looks back. Don't forget, Tyler Lockett... People are saying, oh, he's fading off. You know, DK is the new number one. Tyler Lockett's been banged up all year. Tyler Lockett is still the best wide receiver on the Seattle Seahawks. I don't want anyone to get that confused, all right? Tyler Lockett, when he's healthy, is still a top 10 wide receiver in the National Football League. And that's not to say that DK Metcalf won't soon be considered a top 10 receiver in this league, but Tyler Lockett already is. And their rapport last night between Lockett and Russ was off the charts, nine targets, nine receptions, a tutty mixed in there for Tyler Lockett. That was everything the Seattle Seahawks planned going into that game offensively. And to take it a step further, they did something that without Chris Carson at full health for most of the year, even at times with Chris Carson in the game, they weren't able to do. And that was run the ball effectively. Ground and pound football for the Seattle Seahawks The inability to do that has really hurt them in recent weeks. I mean, Russ's interceptions have been through the roof. He's already got 10 this year. Very uncharacteristic of Russ to have 10 interceptions through 10 games. Last night, no turnovers. Put the ball on the mat twice, picked it up each time. No turnovers for Russ and the Seahawks last night. And 165 yards on the ground. That was the difference maker right there. You know, Arizona played a great game. Both defenses had a few sacks. I believe each defense had three sacks in that one. Kyler Murray, if you're just looking at the stat sheet, Kyler Murray outperformed Russ. I think that Russ had the better game, but Murray, 270 yards, got Hopkins involved, got Fitzgerald involved, got Christian Kirk involved. Don't forget, he's got incredible receivers. Arizona, 
couldn't run the ball, and Seattle could. And, you know, you have to look at it on both sides. Seattle's ability to run the ball, first of all, their offensive line's been banged up all year. And it's shown. Russ has gotten pressured. The last time these two teams played, also primetime, Sunday night football, Arizona's defense was throwing blitz packages that Russ looked like he had never seen in his life before at him. I mean, it led to that awful interception to Isaiah Simmons in overtime in that game that sealed the deal, gave Arizona their final possession and the ability to kick the game-winning field goal by Zane Gonzalez. You know, Buda Baker, the way he was used in that last matchup between these two teams, just the blitz packages had Russ looking like an absolute deer in the headlights. Last night, Seattle's offensive line got back on track. Carlos Hyde, you know, there's still no Chris Carson. DJ Dallas was essentially non-existent. Had one carry. It was a great carry, but had one carry. Bo Scarborough, the Crimson Tide product. I mean, look, it is not a stretch to say that you could draft every single draft-eligible running back on Alabama's depth chart every year, 5th, 6th, 7th round, whenever, and they're going to work out in some way, shape, or form for your offense. Because that's what Alabama does. The University of Alabama is an absolute factory when it comes to turning out running backs, not named Trent Richardson. And no matter where you take them, no matter what year, no matter whether they were the starter, second string, third string, they're going to get meaningful carries for your team. You know, Scarborough only had six carries last night. They were all meaningful. They gave Carlos Hyde a break. Hyde had an incredible game. The offensive line really pushed back Arizona's front seven beautifully for the most part. I'd say the offensive line won at least 70% of their battles last night. And that's something that you haven't been able to say about Seattle's offensive line all year. It was a great night for them and a great night for the Seattle Seahawks run defense. Just as I talk about their ability to run the ball, they took away Arizona's ability to do the same with their run defense, which has been the saving grace for the Seahawks on the defensive side of things. Third best run defense in the National Football League this year compared to not just the worst pass defense in football, but a pass defense that is on pace to be the worst of all time. I mean, if you look at the six, seven-year flip for the Seattle Seahawks, going from the Legion of Boom to now the Legion of Bust, you know, Dunbar and Shaquille Griffin have really struggled to stay healthy. You can't fault them for that. Griffin with the concussion, of course. Without those two, you know, Jamal Adams is not a pass coverage safety. He's one of the best safeties in football. To call him top three, I think, is a guarantee. The argument can be made he's the best. This year, I think Puda Baker, the guy who was playing for the other team last night, has been the best safety in football. Jamal Adams, though, is a glorified linebacker. He gives you a little bit in pass coverage, but he is by far most effective when he blitzes. He's just smaller than most linebackers. That's why he plays safety. Their secondary has been abysmal. But last night, You know, it's not like their secondary was incredible. No interceptions. Kyler Murray was able to move the ball fairly well. But they did just enough. And the run defense took Kenyon Drake totally out of the equation last night. And that's how Seattle wins the game. Seattle 7-3 now. Still on pace, I think, to win that division. I think still the best team in that division. I think the Seahawks are the best team in the NFC. Tampa Bay maybe a little more complete on each side of the ball. Their defense, no doubt about it, way better than Seattle's, but I don't know. I would love to see those two teams in the NFC Championship game. I'd love to see Brady versus Russ again. 
Super Bowl rematch right there. Brady in a new uniform, of course, but I'd love to see those guys go at it for the right to play, let's face it, Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs in this year's Super Bowl down in Tampa Bay. The Seahawks are back. Make no mistake about it. You know, I said I was talking earlier in the week to former Seattle Seahawks all-pro linebacker Lofa Tatupu, and we were texting about their struggles, you know, the offensive line, the inability to run the ball, uh, the passing defense, of course. We were talking about all that. And I said, you know what? They struggled. They were 5-0. and Lost three out of four after that. I said, this is the time Pete Carroll wants to struggle. Pete Carroll is going to have this Seahawks team. If it didn't start with last night, he's going to have them play their best football of the season in December. The Seahawks are still in the mix for the one seed in the NFC. You know, see what happens this week. Green Bay playing Indy. Surprisingly, the Packers are underdogs. It's at Indianapolis. You know, the Colts have the best offensive line, best defense in football. So we'll we'll see how flustered Aaron Rodgers gets going to Indy. He didn't look great in that win against Jacksonville last week. I'd say Aaron Rodgers definitely underperformed. Maybe they were overlooking the Jaguars, but he did not look great. And now he's going up against the best defense in football on the road. You know, the Seahawks are still in the mix. This was a huge win. Winner of this game moves to first place. And you also don't want to get swept by a divisional rival like Arizona for tiebreaker purposes. Huge win for the Seahawks. I think Russ is back in the MVP discussion. I think the Seahawks are back in the top seed of the NFC discussion. I love the Seattle Seahawks. Mike Golick Jr. of ESPN, former Notre Dame standout lineman, getting ready to join the show. Guys, this is an interview you don't want to miss. Stay tuned here on Sorallo Sports Talk. Don't even think about leaving. You're locked into the best sports talk out there. Here's Joe. back here on Serralo Sports Talk and joining the show because it is too damn Friday. It's the man with the best dance moves in Bristol, Connecticut. The man whose thighs are CPR certified to save some lives, Mike Golick Jr. Thanks for joining the show. Quite a, quite a welcome here. I appreciate it, man. Give me a Get me right in the mood here early on a Friday. Get a, a lead into the show so I can roll in hot. You know, I got to get you ready for my show. I got to get you ready for your show later on today with Janae, 4 o'clock, ESPN Radio, also ESPN Plus. Can't miss it. You know, you guys are really killing it right there. It's been a lot of fun, man, and to, to get to lean into moments like that. Anyone who maybe doesn't recognize that song, every Friday we cut it loose. It's dancing around the studio. And uh, I know our bosses probably love that on an audio medium, us going totally visual for that one. But you know what? It's been good. They've kind of let us play in the sandbox for a while and feel our way around here as we try and make a radio partnership really uh, flourish from 2,000 miles apart as she's in Los Angeles for her leg of the show and I'm out here in Bristol. Yeah, and you guys are killing it. You know, I had to rep my Bonnie shirt today for uh, for Devin Kane, who uh, helped make this happen. Shout out, Devin. And also, Justin Craig. Has Justin said anything about the uh, the hip gyrations every Friday that take place on Chanae and Golick Jr.? 
I think Justin's trying to largely pretend that he can't see it or it's not happening. It's kind of that if I can't see you, you can't see me thing. So maybe that's just self-preservation at this point as he tries to maintain what, you know, little respect he's got left for me there. (laughs) And it's dwindling every week, it seems. Uh, Mike, you know, I I can't believe that you're actually up this early. I know it's 11 o'clock on the Eastern Seaboard, but late night for you, some American athletic football. Not only do you have your radio show, you're calling games, college football games for ESPN. And that Tulsa-Tulane game for what was an absolute snooze fest in the first half, that game ended up being a blast. And you called it. You tweeted before the game, got some defensive studs here. And for that to end on a double overtime pick six, man, what was that game like from, uh, from your vantage point? It, it was a lot all at once. And you mentioned it. You sort of got lulled into a false sense of security of what this game was. Because for Tulsa on their side, there had been a pretty strict game script for them all season long. This was their fourth double-digit comeback win in six games this season. They're never out of a ball game. And what's usually happened is, all right, they turn the ball over a bunch in the first quarter. They start to dig their way out. Zach Smith, their quarterback, Baylor transfer, ton of talent, is able to then throw for big yardage. Their starting quarterback goes down with an injury in Zach Smith. Their backup quarterback, Seth Boomer, comes in and goes down to injury. So now you're on your third-string quarterback. You end up down 14 points after the three quarters of this game, and they somehow find a way to claw their way back in. And you mentioned, for it to end, Zayvon Collins is a name that a lot of people are going to start to get to know better and better. A 6'4", 260-pound off-ball linebacker who I think – it kind of in the mold of, uh, like, say, a Ziggy Ansah from the NFL or even a Josh Allen where maybe less the specifics and more. He just hasn't been playing football in a spot that can develop him. He's from a super small town in Oklahoma, and now we're seeing all of this ability start to really be matched by production. I won't be surprised if he's a guy that leaves school after this season and starts getting some first-round consideration. And what for you? Because Collins had that 90, was it 96, 98-yard pick six in overtime? What for you was the crazier play, that to end the game or the 37-yard touchdown pass to tie it as time expired in the fourth for Tulsa? Yeah, I think it's got to be the Hail Mary in that instance, just because, too, Tulane on the other side had a chance to set up before that and somehow managed to let Juan Carlos Santana, who'd been one of their better receivers, and that group get behind them in that instance in the end zone on the Hail Mary. We were fresh off what even wasn't a traditional Hail Mary in the Arizona Cardinals-Bills game the past weekend before they played on Thursday night. So everyone's aware of Hail Marys. And this is what happens inside a locker room's college or pro is when there's a big moment like that in the game, coaches generally tend to use those things as teaching moments inside of a locker room about being prepared for situations. You go over that stuff on Friday and walkthroughs, and for a lot of people, it tends to be white noise. You go through the motions. You try and make sure you're going out there. It's a half-speed jog-through But for all these coaches, it's a good reminder, hey, we've got to be ready for when this situation comes up. And I'm sure it's going to turn into a big-time teachable moment, the Tulane locker room on defense. But the execution from Tulsa down the stretch there, remarkable. Yeah, I mean, this Tulsa team's incredible. You know, they've done it, you said, four double-digit comebacks this season. They've done it week in, week out this year. And that game, it had a lot to make up for after that first half. But I'd say it definitely did the job. Not the craziest game of the college football season. I think the biggest emotional roller coaster for you, safe to say, two weeks ago, Notre Dame Clemson. Uh, it was a, a nightmare. <laughs> I don't like who I become during Notre Dame games, man. It, it's, and I told my parents, because I, I grew up a really, really big Notre Dame fan as a kid. And 
you know, just, you know, dad obviously going there, mom going to St. Mary's right across the street. We've been swallowed in blue and gold since we were kids. And so I, that's the only team I'm a true fan of. I don't have a pro sports team that I really follow in any sport. It's it just Notre Dame football. And when there were finally stakes on the line again, we had kind of walked through the beginning portion of our season knowing this is the narrative game. Notre Dame's finally got to win the big one in the Brian Kelly era. And when it started getting real in the third and fourth quarter, I started getting very dark. And my family can attest I'm not a fun person to watch these games with. I mean, I'm just going to read some of your tweets here from that night because it's, I don't know if your blood pressure has still recovered two weeks later from that game. I mean, I was genuinely concerned. You tweeted out, I want to be dead. I hate the yeah. world. Yeah. My life is hell. Okay, I'm back. And then baby grunk doo 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 doo. I mean, that was all five in a row right there. That wasn't even like I mixed and matched from throughout the night. No, yeah. Again, my my existence was pain during that game, and it was only a relief when we finally get. Like the only time I got to exhale was when it was finally fourth and twenty five, and our defense was coming off two straight sacks, and I thought oh, wow, we're actually going to do this. This is actually real now. We've managed to knock them so far off course that even the all-world freshman quarterback in DJ Uyangale, who only came into Notre Dame and threw for more yards than any opposing quarterback in Notre Dame history, topping Carson Palmer from the early 2000s USC teams. Like, completely insane to get to say about a kid who's a true freshman going out and wowing the country for a few games while Trevor Lawrence sat. But it, it was an unbelievable night, and, and Notre Dame has a ton to be proud of in that game and the way they went out and executed. It's been building to this moment for a while, and they went out and finally captured it. Yeah, it was an incredible game. I, I will say – I don't know which, my, which tweet from that night was my favorite. There were two later on that were absolutely incredible. One was the shade you threw at Dabo. I mean, when uh, you retweeted a, a tweet about his sideline temper tantrum and just wrote shocking, I thought that was pretty great. And then Ian Book's sneaky athletic. I think the only thing there that you were missing for like white athlete bingo would have been great locker room presence or a real cerebral guy. The sneaky yeah. athletic term, that was, that was great. It, it, you know, and you know what, and, and I, you appreciate that it's done with the full acknowledgement of what it's doing. We finally become meta enough with our white quarterback euphemisms <laughs> here that I feel like the the internet can go from looking at those and saying, oh man, we're really still doing this to, all right, now we are all enlightened and understand that this is the joke you must make the minute a white quarterback takes off and runs. So Absolutely. it was, uh, it, yeah, it was uh, par for the course on both of those. And Dabo, for all the things that he does very well, like a lot of coaches, gets a little animated on the sideline at times. And when you're Clemson, you generally tend to get the benefit of a lot of those calls when he's the one yelling at you. Like, if it was him or Brent Venables screaming at me and I'm the ref, I'm giving you the flag too. Brent Venables is terrifying. That man is as intense as any person you're going to see in college football. And Dabo certainly has the clout to go out there and try and throw his weight around. Yeah, and it's well-deserved at this point what he's done this past decade. Now, you mentioned DJ, what he did coming into Notre Dame and throwing for 440 yards. You know, a lot of people after that game, the narrative kind of was out there. Well, oh, Clemson didn't have Trevor Lawrence, first pick in the draft this coming year. But after TJ set that record, does that kind of squash the narrative? Because it's not like Trevor was probably going to come in and throw for more than 440 yards. So where do you think Notre Dame stands against a full-strength Clemson offense? Yeah, I actually think the full strength is going to be more effective for Clemson on defense. I think they're missing three or four key starters on that side of the ball. And I was having my, that conversation with my dad earlier uh, in the day today, actually, about 
the Notre Dame-Clemson game because he's on the call for Clemson and Florida State this weekend as Trevor Lawrence is going to be back in that lineup. And the difference that he saw and the difference that I saw is in key situations. DJ is talented enough to go out there and amass a ton of yards because he can throw the ball probably harder than Trevor Lawrence already at this point. He's powerful. He's decisive. But it's the situational awareness that Trevor Lawrence has grown so much in in the last few years. He came in similarly, uber-talented, and just raw and having to work through all that and getting by on all that. And this year I said it was the Neo Matrix year where he started seeing football in zeros and ones. And now it's Joe Burrow 2019 accuracy with gifts that Joe Burrow could never imagine physically. And that's the difference. So you had key third down situations where DJ's throwing balls over someone's head, misfiring on a target that Trevor's just not this year. And those are the situations where Notre Dame, if they're lucky enough to see them again in the ACC championship game, are going to have to be ratcheted up even more so because I actually worry less about while the defensive starter is probably more impactful, Notre Dame's offensive line running back room and the plan they had in protection for what Brent Venables throws at you, which is everything I thought was a really positive note for them and one that gives me a lot of confidence, even as the personnel improves, because that's a strength area for Notre Dame as well, the running back room and certainly their offensive line. Yeah, and flipping over to Clemson's running back, I will say, even though DJ threw the ball all day, I thought the most impressive part of that game was holding Travis Etienne, I believe, under 30 yards. I mean, Notre Dame's front seven really came to play in that one. That was impressive. It was, and Clemson's offensive line is always an area. They've had it for the last couple of years, really good tackles. Uh, Jackson Carmen is a first-round caliber left tackle for them, tons of gifts, and really starting to play technically great football this year. But that group in the middle, you can find ways to move around. And Notre Dame's up, undersized up under front. They've got a bunch of sawed-off D tackles that are like 6'1", and they're so short, they list them on the depth chart at like 6'1 and 7 eighths or 6'1 and 5 eighths to try and give them every little bit in this instance here. But they're great at moving around. Clark Lee is an excellent coordinator who times and manipulates pressure really well on different downs with that group. And so, yeah, they were able to do a lot up front because, honestly, when you watch Clemson, even when Trevor Lawrence is in there, most of the game is getting serves back over, volleying it back until you can get a big play for Travis Etienne. Like, that really seems to be this year since they lost T. Higgins and Justin Ross for different reasons this offseason, what they've got to rely on. Amari Rodgers is a really capable receiver, but Travis Etienne is heads and tails the second best player on that offense after their quarterback. And they're looking for big plays for him all over the field. He's a more viable pass catcher now. So for Notre Dame to cue in and limit him the way they did, I think was the right game plan and the, the reason they won, even though they amassed a lot of yards elsewhere. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, Mike, the last time we spoke, the, the world looked a lot different. It was down at uh, Radio Row in Miami back in January, and you ranted and raved about Tommy Reese, your former teammate, who had just, I believe at the time, was like a couple weeks off promotion from quarterback coach to offensive coordinator. And you were talking about him like he was like you were a proud father. It was actually awesome. What does the future hold for Tommy? I mean, the guy is, what, barely 30 years old, and he's already the offensive coordinator of a top three. I mean, you can argue the best college football team in the country right now. What's Tommy's ceiling? Uh, extremely high. I, I think Tommy has a couple of things going for him. Is it, One, demeanor and experience as a player. Tommy was pressed into playing in a lot of different scenarios as a starter, as a guy coming in. So he experienced a lot of football on his own. But if you talk to him about his journey after the fact, he went and GA'd with Pat Fitzgerald at Northwestern and then got to go work in the Chargers organization and said, the football education you get at the professional level, Tommy's like myself, he didn't play professional football. And so going up 
there and seeing the game through the eyes of some of the brightest minds, the people who are paid to do this for a living with no other distractions there, I think really showed him a lot more of what you can do. And I think it's seen in this offense there's certainly a maturity in understanding where your strengths are. But along this season, they had a whole new group of receivers they were working with. They've got a tight end room whose best player is probably young and Michael Mayer, a stud freshman out of Northern Kentucky, but they've got plenty of bodies in there. And so Tommy, while trying to also work in what's going on on the outside, has leaned into their strength, has found creative ways to, even when everyone knows they're going to run it, window dress it with motion and all these different things, different personnel packages to make it work. And, and Tommy's always been such a heady guy and so in control. That was the number one thing as a player I knew. When Tommy was back behind us on the line, we're going to be in the right play. I know exactly where Tommy's going to be in the drop. I know where he's going to be on the launch point. And, and I think now as a coordinator, he's been that way. For him to sh- be able to show up and go toe-to-toe with Brent Venables on that stage, I thought was a really cool moment for him. And it, sky's the limit. Whatever want Tommy wants in the world of coaching, I have a feeling he's going to have the opportunity for because he's earned it. Yeah, he's amazing. You know, watching that game reminded me a lot of – and watching Ian Book and the progress he's made this season reminds me a lot of Joe Brady, who, of course, is now working with Matt Rule and the Carolina Panthers. You know, Brady was a young kid. Not a lot of people knew about him. I think way more people know about Tommy because of his playing days. And then what Brady did last year with that LSU offense in the historic season they had got him an NFL gig by the age of like 28, 29. Proximity to the quarterback never hurts you in these situations. And I think when you talk to Ian Book and you hear from him, the relationship and the trust that he has in Tommy Reese because of the time they've spent together, because quite frankly, Tommy's 28 years old, 29 years old at this point, and not too far from him age-wise as a peer, but especially in the last couple of weeks on these big stage, not only playing Clemson, but playing Boston College after. Jeff Halfley has got that team playing the kind of football you need to play as someone who's going to come in talent-wise as an underdog. And they showed that in the Notre Dame game. But for them to have the maturity and for it to come from a veteran quarterback who's played better than I've ever seen him in the last two games. And that's something, if it keeps up, Notre Dame's had the talent elsewhere for a while to be a contender on the biggest stages. If Ian can keep playing football at this level that he's been helped coach to and that he's gone out and earned through a lot of reps and a lot of time in an Irish uniform, they really have a chance to do something. How much did that BC game scare you, by the way? A lot of emotion. It was the red bandana game. You know, it's always the two, I believe the only two Catholic schools in uh D1A college football. Does that game ever worry you as a trap? Uh, I think it's less a trap and more just you always know it's going to look exactly like it did there for a while at least. And that was the curious difference I was able to see. Them and Pitt are always kind of games where it's less a trap and more just an understanding through familiarity. You see these so long. These are rivalry games in their own ways for Notre Dame. And so when you've got that familiarity – and, again, I I can't say enough good things about Jeff Halfley and that – you know, Boston College program, the way he's got them playing right now, what he brought with him over from Ohio State as far as scheme on defense and maximizing what they've got. There was part of me that I don't think it was worried. It was more, we're, and this is the old cliche, but it's more about us, right? It's how is Notre Dame going to mentally respond in this situation? And there was enough for a coaching staff to correct on a bye week. There were some sloppy mistakes with ball carrying and ball handling there. You put the ball on the mat way too much. At the end of the day, they were able to go out, especially offensively, and executed a really high level coming off of one of the most emotional wins you could argue in Brian Kelly's tenure in South Bend. Yeah, and you know what? They got the job done. It wasn't pretty at all times, but they pulled away with enough, enough time left on the clock. And this Notre Dame team, I can't wait to see. I think regardless of what happens in that ACC championship game, 
Notre Dame has earned a spot in the playoff. And I can't wait to see him on that stage again. It's going to be exciting, and I think that's going to be the biggest topic of conversation as we get the first round of rankings coming out next week from the college football playoff committee. It is going to be going along here. Do Notre Dame and Clemson put themselves in a position where you have two representatives from the ACC? I think right now I know percentage-wise the Big Ten actually has the best chance the way that Wisconsin's been playing and certainly Ohio State, the presumed favorite. But I think you look at Notre Dame and Clemson and the ACC have a great shot at that. I think Florida – if they can go to the SEC championship game and make things interesting versus an Alabama team that's sitting at number one right now, there's a lot of those factors at play. And then, you know, you get to the Cincinnati's and BYU's of the world that would like to see someone falter enough to give them a shot. It it makes for a really interesting stretch run here. Yeah, it'll be fun down the stretch. I'm definitely pleasantly surprised with how the season's gone. I had a lot of doubt coming into it that we were even going to get to a college football playoff. And, you know, some teams they have, it hasn't really gone their way with COVID, but for the most part, it's been a success. It's been a lot of fun. It, it, it is, and we've, we've certainly got the toughest parts ahead of us, back-to-back weeks with 15 games postponed or canceled at this point. And so uh, college football and everyone involved, uh, it's going to be interesting now. There's, there's so many of the, the things that happen on a college campus, as you well know. We had Halloween weekend where there was a huge uptick in cases in the following week and change after that. But now we're getting ready. Schools like Notre Dame, who around Thanksgiving break, they started the semester earlier so that there'd be a longer winter break. Students are going to go home here soon, which means – you're going to get back on some of these college campuses to more of a bubble environment for the players. You're going to have to deal with less of the parts of college life that always made trying to do this in a pandemic difficult there. And maybe in a weird way, it actually gives some of these teams a better shot at finishing the season strong once the students on campus go home and you can stop trying to pretend that college athletes are there to go to class like everybody else. (laughs) I love the honesty. It's much needed. Now, Mike, another thing COVID got uh, got in the way of this year. The Bachelor, the Bachelor franchise was trying something new called Bachelor Live on Stage. And correct me if I'm wrong, but weren't you supposed to partake in that? I was, yeah. Their, their traveling road show was supposed to come to Uncasville, Connecticut to head to the casino down that way. And I was supposed to go and meet. I never heard the number exactly. I never got to see names or a number of, uh, of the women that would have been involved, but I was going to be the bachelor. We had taken the promo pictures and I was scared out of my mind. So I'm somewhat, <laughs> somewhat relieved that we have gotten to, uh, to dodge that one somehow. So I'm not going to lie. That's something that a lot of people might not know you and I have in common is that I actually didn't, wasn't chosen, but received a callback for the Rochester edition of Bachelor Live on stage. I was still a senior at St. Bonaventure. And then by the time they called me back, I had actually started seeing someone and declined. And so I don't know how many other guys they called. I think it was either three or five. And they went ahead with one of the other options, but that got canceled anyway with COVID. But Bachelor Live on stage, the second I saw that, I was like, you know what? I'm going to throw my name in there and see what happens. I, I don't know about you. I was just terrified of trying to remember everyone's names. I was praying there was going to be name tags or something because I, I'm still so traumatized. And I, I empathize with this so much because it would have been me. The old highlight of Jesse Palmer is now a colleague of mine getting the name wrong at the rose ceremony when he was on the show. And I was like, that would be me on stage here is I would call someone the wrong name or say the wrong thing and they would feel bad and I would be apologizing. Like I'm not good at dating one woman at a time let alone trying to date 10 in front of an audience. So it just it, – it was a situation that was going to be fun. I mean, would have been great contact. Like, I think half of ESPN Radio was going to be in the audience and my mom. So Amazing. it would have been every bit of the theater that we hope for and get on the show every week. Absolutely incredible. 
What do you think of this season so far? The Bachelorette, I, I admitted to you before we started recording that I haven't watched this week's episode. I'm just incredibly thankful that Claire is gone. Yeah, uh, the beginning of this season was awful. And Claire, and this is two parts is one is she wasn't here for the right reasons. You know, we saw clearly how this went down. And when the focus solely, well, you know, I shouldn't say that. She came here to play the game to win. And she comes into this one. We know she was supposed to be the, one of the older, more mature bachelorettes that we had had. And she came in and immediately found the one guy that she liked somehow after like two hours. And she sat on the couch with Chris Harrison and said that we didn't have contact before and break any of the rules. But it just made it for such unwatchable TV because the fun of the bachelor and bachelorette for the contestants is finding love. The fun of it for us is all of the ridiculous BS that goes along with it. And so we weren't getting group dates. We weren't getting two-on-ones. We didn't get to develop serious villains. It was just everyone hating Claire and Dale for only being there for each other. And so I'm happy they found love. I hope their life is great together. But my God, Tasha has taken to this so naturally. And I don't know if it was the way they edited at the beginning of the season or just everyone all of a sudden feeling like they're a part of this, but the, the air in the room got so much lighter when she walked in. She's such a natural for this, handles it so well. And now we're getting to know the guys in the house. We've had 30 faces in here that have all looked like one for the longest time, and now we actually get to differentiate a bit. That, that is true. I think that's the best assessment I've heard. It was pretty much Dale, and then everyone else was like, Who, what's that guy's name? Has he been on camera yet? I will say, as far as Tasha, the one thing I'm disappointed about is that if I had known from the start Tasha was going to be the Bachelorette for the entire season – I absolutely would have applied. And now, now seeing her come in, I'm like, well, I'm just shit out of luck because Tasha, like out of 10 to me, if there is a 10, Tasha's about a 17. She, like, I am the biggest Tasha stan you will ever meet. And so that was disappointing for me that it was like not announced before the season. Yeah, I, I enjoyed all of the guys on the show trying to do the thing, with the exception of a, a one and Jason, who obviously, you know, was a little more conflicted. The shout out to my former offensive lineman brethren on there trying to rep for the brand. But uh, yeah, I enjoyed everyone else trying to act like, you know, it's it's hard to just turn over these feelings from Claire, but I'm going to make it work. Like, Tasha walked into the room and y'all went, oh, oh yeah, <laughs> bet. Absolutely, we can make this happen. And like for her, like, it could not have worked out better for the show. Like ability wise, I would say outside of Jojo and Rachel Lindsay, I don't know if there's been a more likable bachelorette in recent memory of someone who just comes in and just understands and is great at the role is personable is great at talking with all these guys plays along with everything. You haven't had any of the worries that I had going into like, Hannah Brown season who definitely outdid my expectations but going into it I had a lot of reservations about from what we've seen from Tasha before on Paradise and everything else she was built for this she's ready and it's showing yeah she's amazing what did you think of the curveball going back to last week's episode of the four new men what was your take on that I love it and so often and I understand in a very human moment if I was one of those guys in the house that felt like they had a head start I would be kind of bummed out about it too and especially for Spencer coming in here which one of you guys scared off Claire all that stuff yes Spencer but Spencer by the way we need to get rid of Ed because Spencer is tailor-made to be one of the villains on this show there's a two-on-one date coming later in this thing it's going to involve Spencer I can't wait he looks like another Hemsworth brother really great eyes but <laughs> He's, he's built to be the villain, and they all clearly hate him because he's an outsider. Like, these guys all forget this is a game. Like, you're here to play and win the game. And so they're like, oh, there's more competition. And they all start shrinking. I'm like, 
bow up, man. Like you're already in a house with like 16 other dudes who I get it. They spend a bunch of time together and they all start to get close and all that. But man, like we don't, we don't got to treat it that seriously. I, I always enjoy the reaction of the guys in the house in that moment, but I thought that was the right thing to do. Tasha deserves a full crop and a full allotment to choose from in this. Now, how long a lot of them stick around remains to be seen because you'd imagine she's also had some more familiarity, even by a couple of hours with the guys already in the house. So I, I, it was a great moment, great TV, job well done by the producers yet again. And, and what about that Noah guy, was he, the guy with the mustache? When he walked yeah. out of the limo, I was like, what the hell is he doing? Like, he looks like he just got off the college rugby pitch. I mean, like, when he walked in, I was like, this guy's out of place. Noah's got one trick, he's, and, he's, and he's young, and that's the, the difference in this season now as we've talked so much about age. But Noah's 25, and he did the right thing. We see this all the time in the, uh, in the limos. You, you try and come out and throw your haymaker early and get noticed. You wear a shark suit. You know, you come out of a, a plane or something like that. But you've got to have another trick. And right now, unfortunately, aside from jumping fences and getting his ass whooped in, uh, on dates, Noah doesn't have a trick besides the mustache. So I don't really think he's long for all this. I appreciate how relatable he is physically. He's not like the rest of these guys who look like the dudes that used to stand outside of Abercrombie and Fitch shirtless and model in the mall. Noah seems more like the guy that was hanging out at Hot Topic. But the <laughs> mustache, at least, at least from a game, a game strategy, I appreciated trying to differentiate yourself amongst a sea of guys that all look like Clark Kent. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. So, so the guy who looks most like Clark Kent, by the way, is my favorite. He was my favorite night one before the whole Dale thing happened. I'm a huge Bennett guy. Bennett to me is like just giving off total Bruce Wayne vibes every week, pulled up in the Rolls Royce, like, you know, New York City. Like no one knows exactly what he does. He deals with money, though, and he lives in Manhattan. Like Bennett's my favorite. Wh where do you see like the final four going? Who do you see making it? So... The final four gets interesting right now. I've looked so far and I've really liked, I took to DeMar a lot in this last episode. Guy from ASU, seems like he likes to have a good time, was slinging mimosas early when they did, uh, well, you haven't seen this episode yet, so I won't do any spoilers in a lot of this one. I look at this, Bennett's actually interesting for me because I was talking about this with uh, Mina Kimes, our great NFL analyst and also a, a bachelor and bachelorette enthusiast. And she thinks, and I, I'm willing to believe that Bennett is being advised to lean into the Harvard bit because it comes off a little bit much for me in a lot of ways with him, but he tends to mean well. He's had some good comedic relief moments here. I think a lot of the Harvard stuff, again, is forced because the Bachelor and Bachelorette love types and trying to work into that. That being said, so far he's pulled off some pretty intense stuff. I would say if I'm looking at these guys the way so far, I would say – I really like Ben, Ben, okay. Brendan. I would say Zach is probably in that one as well. I appreciate it. I saw him wearing the, the um, high top blazer Sakai's in one of the episodes. He's the only guy I've seen bust out a legit pair of sneakers on this show. He's a little bit older and gives off like an Edward Norton and fight club kind of vibe for me. It's a little weird and he sits funny, but she seems into him. I think she kind of trusts him in that house, which is good. And the one I can't really get a gauge on right now is Ivan. He always seems very nervous, but she seems to kind of get along well with him at this point. So I'm kind of looking at that group in there right now. I would like to see it be Ben. I feel like he comes into this and is very genuine on a show that tends to not be. That's fair. You know, I, I think, I think Zach, you talk about her trusting him. I think he's going to get friend zoned eventually. She likes him now. He's like got that warm vibe. You know, she feels safe around him. She doesn't know the other guys that well, but I just see Zach getting friend zoned right now. My final four actually looks totally different. 
I'm, I'm a little torn, but I like Bennett a lot. I think he's going to make it there. I think Spencer for the, for the storyline is going to make it really far. Not going to win, but I think he's going to be, you know, I don't know which season it was a few years back, but Chad went really far to the end and everyone knew he couldn't win, you know, kind of like Corinne, if you want to flip it. Uh, I think that was Nick's season. Yep. And so I think Spencer makes it. I think Bennett makes it. Brendan, she definitely likes. And then, and if any of these guys have been eliminated, by the way, this week, let me know. I love Riley, the, uh, the, uh, the attorney from Long Island City. I think he's got a chance to go really far in this too. Yeah, no, I, I think all those guys still in play at this point. Last I checked, it's still okay. the name round robin, like you mentioned. But yeah, Riley's another one. Strong contender in a lot of this one. Clearly hits, uh, clearly hits arm day. You're going to see in the next episode when you watch it, leg days have been in short supply for a lot of the guys around here, including one in particular who you are going to walk out of the next episode you watch hating one person and one person only. Oh, I, now, now I'm going to watch as soon as we're done talking. Now, now that's, you, can't, you can't be skipping leg day either. That's atrocious. Uh, Mike, I do want to, before we wrap this segment up, though, I want to get to Thanksgiving. Everyone's favorite holiday who's not into the whole gift thing on Christmas because it's all about football, family, and food, the three best things in life. And I want to, if you have the time, do a little fantasy draft of the best Thanksgiving dishes. I'll even give you first pick. Ooh, first pick in this one. All right. So I don't know if you want to start white meat, dark meat first round, or if you want to jump right into the sides, because let's be honest, the sides are everyone's favorite. Yeah, but I think if you're going to build a franchise, you got to build it on a foundation. And I understand what the obvious pick looks like here. But honestly, if I'm going to the Thanksgiving table and I'm building out in order, I'm going ham with the first pick. Oh. I know. Yeah, no, I, I know ham is oh. ham is very divisive too, but I'm sorry. Turkey comes to the party and it's usually a dry addition to it. It relies so much on its teammates in this instance that – I want someone that's going to be able to stand in front of the locker room on its own a little bit more. And a honey baked ham has been a staple of the Golik Thanksgiving for a while. It joins the Turkey in all of this, but in my mind is the clear front runner. It's the better leftover and it can stand on its own two feet a little more than Turkey. That just blindsided me. I mean, the Goliks obviously do Thanksgiving, right? Because we save the ham for Christmas. We don't, we don't do the ham at Thanksgiving. Oh yeah. We know we're a two meat Thanksgiving. Oh, that's amazing. I was thinking white meat, dark meat, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm really astonished right now. So I'm going to have to go uh, dark meat. To me, you can keep the white meat. Plus, if I draft white meat and I don't draft cranberry sauce with it, then the white meat is useless. You know, it's, it's like having a great quarterback and no left tackle. Uh, you just can't do it. So I'm going to go dark meat with my first pick of this five-round draft. And, uh, and then I'm going to hand it back to you for your sides. I was going to say, so we go, for the, we go for the sides now in this one. And, and this becomes really interesting because it's what you want in your team. Each side kind of plays a different role in that. But again, I believe that you win with stars in this league. And so I'm going to go ahead and pick stuffing for my first round draft pick on the side right here. Again, it's another one that a bit boomer bust at times if you're scouting it out here, because if you've had bad soggy stuffing before, you know it can really bottom out here and tank your team. But I'm trusting the upside of this pick. I want to build for the long term here. I'm not making a pick for right now. I think this can be a great team for the next five to ten years. And I think stuffing's high upside is really a big part of that. Now, is, is that a sausage stuffing or is that a bread stuffing? Like, what, what kind of stuffing is this that we're talking about? I would prefer a sausage stuffing. I, I always like a little bit of added meat into my equation here. But, I, I, listen, I've had all varieties here. And, and, again, I think on their best day, they add a flavor profile to the plate that very few other things can stack up with. Yeah, you know, I was going to go with the sausage stuffing with my first side pick. I, I have a 91-year-old aunt who still makes every year the turkey and the sausage stuffing and knocks it out of the park. Um, so thanks for stealing that from me, but I'm going to go with the, 
the mashed sweet potatoes <clears throat> with the toasted marshmallows on top because it's just so versatile. You know, you've got the hardiness of the sweet potatoes plus the sweetness and the crunch on top that the marshmallow provides. And it's just, you know, it's like Buddha Baker, you know, it does a little bit of everything out there for you. So I got to go with that as my first side dish. All right. That's fair enough here. Now, would you consider that a dessert or a side dish? Because to me, that sounds like a sweet potato casserole in a way I'm accustomed to eating for dessert, which I respect, by the way. Okay, I'm no, not no, judging for you. Us, I'm saving dessert for the fifth and final round. For us, that is always out there with dinner. Wow. All right. Interesting. I appreciate the way that you guys do business then. <laughs> Why, wise and educated folks in here. All right. Hmm. This gets interesting. I think, you know what, you finally, for the sake of the locker room, you need someone that's going to rally the troops here. So I'm going to go mashed potatoes. I don't know if I can bring gravy along with, if that counts. Yeah, no, you can, you can. All right. I would say, I'm going to say mashed potatoes and gravy then here. The ultimate literal and physical glue guy in this situation, the binding agent for the entire plate here. Smooth, not overpowering, certainly never going to threaten anyone's job security. But I think much like the offensive line, when you don't hear much about him, it usually means things are going well for you. Yeah, that's fair. And I'm going to take my offensive lineman here and take the cranberry sauce because, you know, the turkey is only as good as the cranberry sauce you can put on top of it. So as long as I have that protection there for my turkey, for my star, I'm pretty confident we'll be able to move the ball all day. Yeah, this is a hot take too. In the Golick family, my mom is the only person that tolerates cranberry sauce. The rest of us punt completely on it. It has no place really? on our Thanksgiving plate. None. Amazing. Yep. I knew that that's why your mom is my favorite Golic. I mean, anyone who listens to the family podcast, it's, it's a pretty easy decision. Yeah, no, it's a no brainer there. Mom reigns supreme, but yeah, she's the only one going after that. So she usually has a very fortunate situation for her because there's plenty left for her. I'm glad I can make her proud. You get one last side, Mike, what are you taking? I get one last side. So this is my final pick in this one. So this would be the fifth and final pick. Is that where we're no, at no, here? No, one we have the final. And then you get a one, pick. Oh, one last side. Oh, uh, ooh, ooh, um, ooh. I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go green bean casserole on this one. One that really I took to a lot later in life. I was, you know, at times a child and had a child's palate. But when I became a man and understood the green bean casserole was not just the sum of its parts, but I think a better mixture and the onion crum crumblies on top really uh, started to make a presence in my life. No brainer, green bean casserole. You know, I'm going to bring out one that I saved for less because I didn't think you would take it. And maybe it's just because I've got the 100% Italian thing going. But with every meat dish for every holiday, we have a pasta dish as well. And I got to break out mom's lasagna. I know it's, you know, people could argue it's maybe the main course, but in our family, it's, it's a side dish. There's always a pasta to complement a meat at Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, and mama's lasagna has to be on the plate right next to my turkey. So Beautiful that's going to be my sleeper in this draft. That's a, that's a hell of a sleeper. You just found Tom Brady in the six. Congratulations. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, you get the pick for dessert. What are you going with? Pumpkin pie. Next All question. Right. Yeah, no, that's, I was, I was just sitting, sitting here waiting. I am not a guy that dabbles in a lot of, uh, in a lot of pies per se, but when it gets to Thanksgiving, my Mel Kuyper Jr. comes out and I sit there and we'll put down usually an entire pie by myself. We usually bring multiple because everyone kind of goes, goes off on this part. Yeah. We usually, we usually have about a uh, one pie for every two people at the table and uh, pumpkin pie had an experience two years ago. A cousin of mine offered me 500 to eat one in 75 seconds. And I got the filling down. I was getting cocky. You know, it was like DK Metcalf, you know, dropping the ball at the two yard line. And uh, I got about half the crust down. And next thing I know, I'm choking in 75 seconds hits. 
and uh, I've got indigestion and no money to show for it. So pumpkin 75 pie. Seventy-five seconds. That's that is ambitious, friend. Yeah, it, it was. You know, I mean, I, I thought I could do it. You know, I was coming back from college and uh, hadn't eaten in about two months because the dorm room food was atrocious. So yeah, that's, yeah, I know. Only, only knock right. on St. Bonaventure. Ask Devin about the Hickey Dining Hall. As if the name isn't bad enough that we go to the Hickey three times a day. Ask Devin about the food at St. Bonaventure. It uh, it'll make you want to eat a pie in seventy-five seconds when you get home. Understood. I was going to say there's the first segment of the show today. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. So yeah, so did that uh, pumpkin pie. Now I just I can't look at it. So I'm going to go coconut custard. You know, it's got that uh, that like explosive inside with a little bit of crunch on top, and uh, a good coconut custard is you know it, it makes it makes everything whole in your stomach kind of holds everything down too after a big night of eating because i do have about four plates i was gonna say you've got four plates and you've got a lot going on on those plates with the team you've picked here so it sounds like that pie is going to have its work cut out for you here in the best ways possible you know it's, it's a diverse locker room i, I gotta keep everyone you know kind of under control there a lot of mixing and matching but i think if everything's working right you know we, we can win this thing so a lot by of the way i'm totally gonna totally gonna turn our teams into a uh, twitter poll later and see what the people prefer your thanksgiving versus my thanksgiving I was going to say that the ham as the top pick there is going to trigger a lot of people. It's one of the most divisive meats in holiday food kingdom. Yeah, you're going to have $2 bill Twitter and honey baked ham Twitter going at it later. I, I saw that was, that was way more divisive than I ever expected. It, it, it is amazing. The only thing it's been topped by so far this season is weird Miami Dolphins offensive line defender Twitter. It is the strangest group of people that I have encountered. They were incredibly triggered when we talked about their offensive line. I didn't understand it. So, yeah, Twitter's a weird place. I mean, I spend way too much time there as is, but you tend to find these people when you put in the hours. It's incredible. Hey, Mike, I do want to touch on your show uh, really quickly because it's an incredible show. Uh, I was enjoying watching the simulcast a lot before you guys flipped to ESPN+. I still do from time to time. I, a lot of people have downloaded ESPN+, have subscribed to it because the radio show simulcasts went in that direction. But what's it been like for these past couple months working with Chine on Chine and Golic Jr.? I mean, you guys, the chemistry is just unrivaled. Yeah, it's, it's been great. I've been super fortunate, you know, to, to land in this spot and to get this opportunity with Chanae, who is, is, you know, a few years younger than me, even in all this, still a current WNBA player. She does so much work as a part of their players association. And I think for me, just seeing how naturally she takes to all of this, I, I came into media and I'd you know, been around it my whole life with dad and, and grown up around it. And so I, I thought there was a lot of things that, you know, naturally, you know, I, I've been picked up there pretty well, but there, the rest of it has been a lot of work and Janae works so hard, but she does things naturally so much better than I ever could that so many other people and she just picks it up. And, and the best part about working with athletes, I always thought is, is, is they're coachable. We're coachable. And you see with her, she any feedback, she takes it, internalizes it, and then makes it her own very quickly. She's super fun. She's self-deprecating. She always comes with great ideas. Like, she's obviously got a wealth of knowledge and a lot of great relationships. Like, she is out there with the current athletes. You know, she's a, 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 an Adidas brand athlete, so she's super close with Damian Lillard and Donovan Mitchell and all these guys that she's texting inside the NBA bubble and, and hearing about their experiences. And so – I think it gives us such a whole picture of 
what's gone on in the sports calendar, especially in this year that's been so unique. But uh, to get to do it with someone who, you know, she'd been a friend for the last few years anyway, being a couple of the younger folks around here in Bristol and getting to link up and, and do some work together every now and then to, to get to do it every day with someone that, you know, is genuinely a friend and makes the job feel like that comes in and tries to make sure she, you know, and, and this is her, make sure everyone's having a good time every day. Make sure we have fun first and foremost on the show. And it's just, it's been a blast. So looking forward to continuing it, looking forward when this pandemic finally calms down to actually get to do it in the same room. We've done it 3000 miles apart. Me in Bristol and her in Los Angeles for the first however many months of the show now. And we've still managed to have a really good time with it. It's only going to keep getting better. Yeah, and she does a great job also at playing that mom role and reining you in at times when you're, when you're dancing in the studio or you're crying because Jason, Jason Fitz's nickname used to be Jason Shits. I mean, she's, she does a great job at really reining you in at times. She, she is a, definitely a balancing force in this yeah. one. We've got a lot of similarities, but at times she gets to be the grown-up in the room, which I desperately need. By the way, how cool was that to see her get name-dropped a couple weeks ago with the election obviously now being over? Uh, she took the day off, I believe, election day to work as a poll worker, and then President Obama name drops her in a tweet. I mean, that had to, like, make her year. It's, you know what? It's so funny, though, is this is just the stuff that she's used to at this point, right? Like, when you look at, like, the people who are mentors, like Lisa Leslie, like, all-timers, Condoleezza Rice, someone that she knows and is close with from her time at Stanford, who was one of her advisors there, and a mentor. And so to see that, it's just sort of one of those things that go, well, yeah, no, that's exactly what would happen to Chanae in these spots. Because, A, she's doing things that warrant this kind of praise, both in the world of sports, you know, we know she's become the first African-American woman, the first black woman to be the host of a national radio show the way that she is now, but also the things off the court, you know, being involved with more than a vote, understanding what an important part, you know, athletes can play in this process right now. So she deserves all that stuff. And so I look up and I'm like, man, that's cool. And man, I'm not surprised. And what a wild thing to get to say about somebody that you work with every day. It's awesome. Mike, you're awesome. Thanks so much for joining the show, man. Hope you don't have to save too many lives this weekend with those thighs. All right, man. I appreciate your time. I'm going to try and keep these gams in check as best I can. <laughs> as always, Mike Golick Jr., one of the best voices out there. Thanks so much for joining the show, man. Thanks, man. Don't change that channel. It's time for Joe's final word here on Serralo Sports Talk. What an incredible spot right there for Mike Golick Jr. One of my favorite guests, undoubtedly, of all time. But it's time for my final word right here. On Serralo Sports Talk. And the New York Knicks. For the first time in a long time. The New York Knicks have won something. The New York Knicks just won Wednesday night's 2020 NBA draft. I couldn't believe it. I still can't believe it. I did not turn that draft on until about the 10th pick. Because people were texting me all day. What do you want to do tonight? What do you think the Knicks should do for the draft? What's your dream scenario? And I said, look, I think this draft class stinks. I think that there are a few hidden gems in the late first round, maybe early second round. 
Guys like Cole Anthony, who went 15th, higher than a lot of mocks projected. Guys like Peyton Pritchard. Guys like Emmanuel Quickly, who the Knicks grabbed with their second pick in the draft. But I said after the first four picks, I think this draft class, in terms of lottery picks, stinks. And those first four picks I had in mind were Anthony Edwards, James Wiseman, LaMelo Ball, all went one, two, three. And then I thought going fourth was Obi Toppin. And some way, somehow, Obi Toppin, who I think was the fourth best player in this draft class, the Wooden Award winner a season ago in college hoops, somehow falls to eight, and the New York Knicks did the right thing. To quote Spike Lee, the super Knicks fan, they did the right thing. They took Obi Toppin eighth when everyone was screaming, take Halliburton, the point guard out of Iowa State. Take a point guard. The Knicks need a point guard. The Knicks don't need a point guard in the draft because the Knicks are going to go out and get Russell Westbrook now. Do you think it was a coincidence that the Knicks draft Obi Toppin, a, a power forward, a good combo forward, I think, eighth, and everyone screaming, take a point guard, and the day after taking a forward, the Knicks purge over $40 million in cap space? Taj Gibson, out. Alfred Payton, out. Wayne Ellington, see you later. Bobby Portis, denied. $40.5 million in cap space, freed up in a year where the free agents available, I know Gordon Hayward just got added to that class, it's a year where the free agents are nothing to write home about. 2019, amazing free agents. 2021, can't wait to see what that holds. 2020, nope. Russell Westbrook, is coming to New York. To me, it is so crystal clear. I know they drafted a point guard in Emmanuel quickly. He's a scoring point guard who has great handles. I think he is going to be an incredible rotational third guard on your team who can come in and give Russ a break or who can come in and give RJ Barrett a break at the two. Russell Westbrook is going to be playing point guard in Madison Square Garden for the Knicks, and I can't wait. Look, it's going to cost this team a lot, right? There's no doubt about that. The Houston Rockets are going to try to get as much as they can because James Harden and Kevin Durant have made it very clear publicly on social media. They want to play together in Brooklyn. The Rockets are going to get a haul for Harden. They're not going to get as much, but they're still going to get plenty for Westbrook. Let them rebuild. That's fine. The Knicks, fact of the matter is, haven't done a whole lot with their draft picks in recent years anyway. I think for the first time in a long time, they knocked this draft out of the park. They're the clear winners here. I can't wait to see what Tom Thibodeau does with this team. They're not going to win a championship. Russell Westbrook coming to New York to team up with R.J. Barrett and Obi Toppin and Julius Randle and Mitchell Robinson, who I think is incredible. I think he's very underrated. That's not going to bring the Knicks a championship. But the Knicks haven't been competitive in the better part of a decade. The Knicks haven't sniffed the playoffs in a conference where you don't have to even be 500 to make it to the postseason. What Russell Westbrook coming to New York, in addition to this incredible draft class, will do, and a coach like Tom Thibodeau, that'll make the Knicks a playoff team. Just give your fans what they deserve, a postseason appearance, and then, and this is the part where maybe I sound crazy, let your fans get used to making the playoffs. Because in this current landscape of the Eastern Conference, there is no excuse, no reason that the New York Knicks 
the most valuable NBA franchise should not be in the playoffs every single year. Whether you're an eight seed, whether you're a one seed, whether you're a championship contender, that'll all come. Hopefully, hopefully we'll get back to the days of the late 60s and early 70s. Hopefully we'll get back to the days of the 90s. Right now, just get me to the damn playoffs. And I think bringing Russell Westbrook to New York in the coming weeks will do that. I think drafting Emmanuel quickly with your second pick, knocking that one out of the park, will do that. And I think taking Obi Toppin, some way, somehow, by the good grace of God, Obi Toppin falling to the eighth pick in the draft, that'll do that, because there ain't no stopping Obi Toppin. And just like that, this episode of Serralo Sports Talk is up, it's over, it's out of here. Huge thanks to Mike Gola Jr. for hopping on the show. Huge thanks to the New York Knicks for finally getting it right. That's it, guys. I'll see you next week.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.